Welcome to the Birds Up Podcast, brought to you by the UTSA Alumni Association. We are your source on what's going on at the university, the Alumni Association, and all things Runner Nation. Because now and forever, we are Roadrunners. Welcome, Runner Nation, to another episode of the Birds Up Podcast, brought to you by the UTSA Alumni Association. I am your host, Drew Addison, and with me, as always, is the Alumni Association president, my beautiful wife, Yvonne. How are you today? Hello, everybody. Happy Birds Up Podcast episode release day again. Yeah, that's right. Uh, The podcast for runners by runners. right. Classes past, present, and future. So (laughs) any runners who are out there, that even those that may not be runners yet, that are soon to be. So uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you again so much for taking the time to listen to our wonderful show. We have a lot going on today. Super excited about this episode, but before we get into that, let's go ahead and talk about some things that are going on at the university with the Alumni Association. Yvonne, what do we have going on? Yeah, so just a quick reminder about Diploma Dash, which is coming up March 26th. And one of the things I wanted to put out to our listeners is we are looking for volunteers. So if you're interested in volunteering or, you know, you've got folks in your family, kiddos who need some volunteer hours, we are happy to welcome everyone everybody who would love to come and be a part of this great event, help us putting it together. And there's additional information on how you can register on our links on social media. A couple of posts have gone out in the last week that include ways to help volunteer. And of course, you can also go to utsa.edu backslash alumni for more details. And being a veteran of the Dash Run, it is a lot of fun. Usually a really, really great turnout. I'm excited that it's back in person again this year. Normally the weather is really great and it's mm-hmm. a really cool run to run around the university too and get yeah. to run in some areas that you probably didn't even know existed. The yeah, university. like down in the tunnels. And yeah, 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 it's yeah. pretty cool. And it's cool to have like the support from the faculty and staff and everybody that's out there cheering the runners on. So highly suggest the run. It is a great time. So definitely check it out on socials. Even if you're interested in just volunteering, please, please do. The more, the merrier. So please sign up and check it out and we'll see you out there. Another thing that's up, uh, we have the class ring sales coming up on February 15th through the 17th from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. in front of the bookstore on campus. So, th- And this is also open to alumni that maybe time has passed. And at the time, just like every other college student, probably wasn't the right time to make that investment. But you want to go and get your ring now, totally able to do that. And for current students that are graduating out, this is your opportunity to go out there and get your rings ordered. Again, that's February 15th through the 17th from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. in front of the bookstore on campus. And then also again on February 16th from 1 to 5 p.m. in the Frio building at the downtown campus. So two opportunities, two locations, one on the main campus, one downtown, or you can also go on balfour.com backslash UTSA. So that's B-A-L-F-O-U-R.com backslash UTSA. PSA and get your rings ordered. Yeah, I love my ring. It's such a neat reminder of my accomplishment. So yeah, we talk a lot about your, your time, <laughs> namely your book bag. Oh gosh, <laughs> Bo, backpack on wheels. Yeah, well, I mean that was, was a lot of books companion. out to carry. Oh my gosh, because I mean back then we didn't have the you didn't really have the access to digital books like we do now. Yeah, I still am not a super hundred percent like online book reader. Yeah. I like my books like hardcover so I can highlight and put tabs. 
hard to move to the electronics only thing. But yeah, those heavy books, I needed a way to get around campus and putting them on my back all day long was too much. So well, backpack on wheels. I experienced school through the hard copy era <laughs> and then the digital era. Yeah. You know, I, I took my time off in between starting and finishing. I do have to say that I really did appreciate the online digital books. It was really convenient mm-hmm. and making notes, highlighting, summarizing everything. It's, it's right. pretty unbelievable where they've come along. So yeah. your experience as an engineer <laughs> leads us into one of the biggest accolades the university has ever received. Oh my gosh, yes. So last month, you know, of course, there's a lot of buzz going around of UTSA earning tier one research designation by the Carnegie Classification of Institutions of Higher Education. This is a huge, huge honor. UTSA has been working at this for probably 20 years. Mm. So it it wasn't something that transpired over a year. Um, It's been a lot of years and then making a lot of people being part of this process and and really getting us to where we are today. It really unlocks opportunities for the university for further grant funding, recruiting of world-renowned professors, faculty, visiting folks who can come and lecture to our students and our community. Research is focusing on biosciences, biotechnology, energy, artificial intelligence and automation, of course, cybersecurity, cloud computing, and some other fields. And we're going to talk about one of them here with Dr. Packham shortly. Mm -hmm. Uh, But just to kind of give you an idea about this by the numbers, last year alone, UTSA faculty landed 376 research grants that totaled about $168 million. And of course, the largest of that one was a $12.5 million uh, grant from the National Institutes of Health for Brain Research, which we all know is top of mind being able to make advances in things like brain research and cybersecurity Mm. and other technologies and really being the forefront as an institution of research within those different categories. So we're super excited about it, which takes us into our interview today with Dr. Packham, which was a lot of fun. And I'm a space nerd, so apologies now. (laughs) But this was a great one. I loved it. Yeah, Dr. Packham is a professor of astronomy at UTSA, but it goes so much deeper than that. There has been a bit of news on the recent award to UTSA to have some time on the new James Webb Space Telescope that just launched back in December and uh, is on its way a million miles from Earth. This is a $10 billion telescope, the most advanced space instrument in existence. And through Dr. Packham's relationships and his partnership with NASA and the European and Canadian space agencies, he got UTSA awarded 53 hours with the James Webb Space Telescope for research. For people to understand what that means, when these telescopes go up there, there's like a million people trying to get time on this Yeah, it's really competitive. So the fact that we're able to carve out 53 hours for UTSA students is totally incredible. Dr. Packham goes into uh, really kind of where he came from. He's obviously not from Texas, so uh, (laughs) uh, he has... Has a really, really extensive background. He's been all over the world in his research. We do dive into that. And, you know, one thing that we do want to highlight with this podcast is, you know, when it comes to the Tier 1 Research Institute, one thing that we want to highlight is the research that the faculty are doing yes. and what that actually means, right? Because, you know, we, we read it on social medias. We read it on the news articles. This thing was awarded to UTSA. Now, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. So th- this is a prime example, this episode here, of 
what that research is doing, what it means for the students, and what it means for the university moving forward. And especially an appreciation for what it takes to get there to these awards that we read about in the news. I mean, it takes years of preparation, frankly, from a lot of people putting their heads together and really working at this to make this successful for us. So I, I'm super excited about our interview. And Absolutely. The reach goes out far and wide. So we hope that we do it justice as far as exactly what it is that Dr. Packham is doing. But stick around for after the interview. We got some more university and alumni association news and we'll be back in a few. Birds up. Beep, beep. All right, today we have such a special treat. UTSA faculty member, professor of astronomy, and our first astrophysicist on the show, uh, Dr. Chris Packham. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Obviously, you weren't born in Texas, so um, (laughs) tell us how does a young man from the UK, number one, get, I guess, really introduced to astronomy and astrophysics? So I was born in Billericay, which is a faintly sounding town on the east side of London, and my grandparents parents lived on the south coast of England. So for my holidays or vacations, my parents would take me down to go and see them. And it was wonderful as uh, London's fairly bright, but in the south coast of England, there's not many lights there. And I remember walking with both my grandfather as well as my uncle when I was about four years old and they would point out the stars. And I was always intrigued. What are those points of light? Mm. And I was always interested in that. And then there was a a rerun on uh, the BBC television of a guy called Carl Sagan. Oh, yeah. Cosmos. Yeah. And that was it. We're about specks of dust. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That was it. I, I just knew what I wanted to be from then. I really wanted to try to understand what was going on in the universe. And that that was it. That was the track I followed. You go into astronomy, but with applied physics. Is that a pretty common coupling there? Yeah, I like to advise my students to do physics as uh, astrophysics is really an application of a, a specific type of physics. So having that physics underpinning is key and then applying it to astrophysics is really good. I guess one other thing I did, which is becoming more important to me again, is philosophy. Mm. Uh, So philosophy is a great way to consider some esoteric things, which comes to use when uh, thinking about black holes. But those three subjects were, were really fun to me. The philosophy side of things, how does that come about? I mean, obviously, you know, there is like the scientific process of this is kind of where the world started and potentially how life began and, and everything else. At what point did philosophy become so intermingled with astronomy and astrology? One of the really interesting things is when we think about the start of the universe and what is science, what's speculation and what's science, or what can we know, what can't we know? And those are getting close to philosophical questions. Mm-hmm. And so that entwinement of physics, astrophysics, and then philosophy is a really cool area. For example, one of NASA's big goals, and indeed astronomers in general, is to find life on another planet. But actually, the definition of life is not universally agreed upon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is a scientific question, what is life? But it's also somewhat philosophical. Mm -hmm. When does a microbe become, as it were, life? What are the ethics that we have to think about of life? So there's some good philosophical ethics and interactions into how we think about astronomy that I think is really cool. (laughs) Well, we had a chance to meet you at the UTSA event. And we started going down the questions because you were talking about philosophy and and at what point do we consider something alive and even bringing up this smart car, you know what I mean? And, and it making the decisions. 
One of the things that I'm really excited about at UTSA in the fall of this year, we're hoping to launch a course called the Philosophy of Space Exploration, where we're going to be examining things such as when does artificial intelligence cross the boundary of life? I mean, there's a huge number of right. sci-fi movies about this, <laughs> about the ethics yes. of this. So we can really ask these questions. Actually, I think it's important to ask these questions to get the answer to that questions, but almost more important to help our students at UTSA to construct a critical thinking framework that we can use for these gee whiz questions, but we can also apply them into other areas, such as contemporary things that we're dealing with right now right. here in the USA. So this is a cool thing that we're doing. Yeah, I mean, as far as like technology is concerned and the development of AI, the light bulb went off for me in that like we got to have this sort of philosophy and these questions being asked, even for the developers of this artificial intelligence mm -hmm. and designing it properly. Absolutely. You know, so, I mean, that's, again, blowing my mind. We'll, we'll get into the new classes that are being offered here, here in a minute. But when you're looking for university, you decided to go to the University of Hertfordshire. What was the draw there? Was that a primary school for that line of study? I really enjoyed the fusion there they could offer of astrophysics with physics and philosophy. So I really enjoyed it there. It was in a very nice part of the UK, a place called St. Albans I lived, which was a lovely old, like a Roman town, so I could enjoy life as well as enjoy studying life there. And wow. uh, the professors, and indeed my PhD advisor was a wonderful guy called Jim Huff. I still keep in good contact with him, and he was a real draw for me to stay there. Wonderful. Undergrad in astronomy and applied physics, you decided to stay. It must have been really nice <laughs> to get your PhD in astrophysics. At that point, are you going into academia? Or do you have opportunities to go elsewhere and do your research? What, what was the plan there? So I was incredibly lucky that I applied for a fellowship towards the very end of my PhD to go and work for the National Astronomical Observatory of Japan. And that's over in Tokyo. And so I took three months over there. And I was working with a bunch of my Japanese colleagues who have since become incredibly close friends. We're still Zoom together nowadays <laughs> as we can't visit each other physically during the pandemic. And I just continued to get bitten hard by the astronomy bug and wanted to continue to understand what's going on with these black holes. That was my subject of my PhD at that time. And you were teaching at the University of Tokyo, which then next took you to the Isaac Newton Group of Telescopes. The British at that time had their largest telescopes down in a small island called La Palma, which is part of the Canary Islands. And I had the opportunity to look after that telescope called the William Herschel Telescope. It has a primary mirror 4.2 meters across. That's about 12 feet across. And it was wonderful making observations and helping astronomers coming to the island to optimize their observations, introduce them to the telescope. And I also had a chance to help build an infrared instrument that we deployed to the telescope and used for a few years. And the infrared side of things is really kind of a large focus of your research, isn't it? Yes. So I'm both a geek in my kind of professional life, but I'm also a geek in person <laughs> as well. At the time I was doing my PhD, there was some new advances in infrared arrays so we could detect infrared radiation even from the ground. And so that gave us the chance to be slightly ahead of other people in doing some kind of novel observations. And I've always tried to maintain that kind of technological cutting edge or bleeding edge area. I find that's a, a really exciting area of astrophysics and technology development. And so the University of Hertfordshire over to the Canary Islands, then we come to the University of Florida. That's right. <laughs> Go Gators. Um, when I was working at the William Herschel Telescope, the Spanish started to build a large telescope called the Gran Telescopio Canarias, and I was watching that being built. I was talking to some folks from the University of Florida, primarily a guy called Charlie Telesco, Professor Telesco, 
and we started to talk about an instrument that he was envisioning for the telescope and we got closer and he said would you like to come across and help us with the development of this instrument so that gave me the chance to go there also helped to develop with Professor Telesco instruments on uh, the telescopes in Hawaii as well as uh, in Chile, the uh, so-called Gemini telescopes. There's two of them, Hawaii and Chile. With the development of these telescopes that come online, are we at the point now where from your office at UTSA, are you able to see what's going on at those individually? Are they all kind of networked in that way? We envisioned this for some time, but really the pandemic has just speed boost everything (laughs) that we uh, I now observe from home. So I was observing just two weeks ago in Hawaii, but I was observing from home here in San Antonio. So I would start at sunset in Hawaii, which is midnight here, and work for 12 hours solid until like midday here. Oh my gosh. Um, But it's wonderful that we can just do this all online from my desktop computer at home. Well, I guess it makes sense that you would have the telescopes all different parts of the world so you can really work on the same spot continuously. You're just switching telescopes. Yes. Oh, it's wonderful. Wow. I kind of miss going to Hawaii, but it's... (laughs) (laughs) Along your path, you've had a chance to work in all over the world, really. You know, it sounds like it's a very collaborative environment, not just wherever you are currently, but as you move to these different areas across the globe. How has that experience been from your perspective of transcending not just physical boundaries, but cultural and political boundaries to work together on all these projects? How has that been? I always tell my students in the undergraduate classes, travel. It's so good. It expands you so much. It humbles you. Being lost in Tokyo and not being able to read anything is a pretty hard gig. (laughs) But it's a wonderful opportunity to go out and meet people that really do challenge you. But again, I say to my students, I think that at the end of the day, we're all the same at heart. We all love Mm -hmm. to sit down, chat, share a good meal, maybe have a glass of beer or two. We're all the same at heart. And I think that's been a wonderful thing that is great. And as astronomers, because there's maybe not so many astronomers compared to other scientific disciplines, we have to work internationally together. Mm. And I think that is a wonderful aspect of astronomy that we really do have a great cultural connection to other areas. Mm -hmm. I think it's really cool that your focus is literally out of this world. Not necessarily what's happening here (laughs) on this planet. It's outside. And when I think about it, it's like we are one planet, one Earth. I mean, whether we're American or British or whatever, you know, at the end of the day, whoever might be out there looking down at us are like, those are just human beings. They don't know what's one or the other. Yeah. I think it's one of the great things here about uh, UTSA that we have such a diversity within the university. And I really enjoy that chance to, to discuss these things and discuss the various experiences from around the world and encourage people to travel around the world. Good segue into what was it about UTSA that brought you to San Antonio? Yeah. So I think there was various reasons why San Antonio was the right choice for me. So number one, I do love the diversity. I value that enormously for the reasons that we just discussed. The university's on the rise. We just got R1 status, Research 1 status, which was tremendous to see that. So it's exciting being a very small part of that rise of UTSA. And also, I think the opportunities around us are enormous. Uh, We have Southwest Research Institute, which I work with very closely. Mm -hmm. And then as we look further south, we see the SpaceX launch pad, which is a tremendous exciting. And and what could happen in this area, you know, kind of like a a space coast, is a reasonable possibility. Summer 2021, you get honored as a fellow of the NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center. I totally bond that. My interest and admiration of NASA really it was spurred by Yvonne. Yvonne being a mechanical engineer, you know, obviously has a big portion of space flight. You see a lot of the astronauts that are mechanical engineers. 
when I told Yvonne, she was like, what, really? How does something like that come about? Yeah. Again, I was just very lucky, the right person at the right time. NASA is uh, very interested in increasing its interaction with places like UTSA. I work with folks over at NASA Marshall especially to try to help opportunities for students such as internships or careers to go to NASA Marshall or some of the other NASA centers. And so we have a contact group that tries to encourage and increase the flow of our UTSA students going out to the NASA centers. So as part of that, they invited me to apply for this position and then I could get to know NASA Marshall a little bit better. And one of my classes, I'm always pushing out, there's NASA opportunities, go out and wow. uh, go out and work for NASA. And I want to just say that one of the things that I didn't realize When we think of NASA, we think of those astronauts on top of the rocket, Mm -hmm. or we think of the experiments that are launched into orbit. But really, NASA needs every type of discipline that there is. Mechanical engineering, software engineering. It needs food nutritionists. If we're going to go to Mars, we better work out what the best food is. Mm -hmm. It needs botanists. If you've watched The Martian, you would have seen uh, (laughs) Mark Watley. It also needs human resources. It needs accountants. So anybody can help NASA in its quest to go to Mars and beyond. Yeah, man. I I can feel it in Yvonne wanting to just be like, darn, where where was it in 2009? (laughs) She's actually the perfect size to fit into a rocket. Me, unfortunately, (laughs) I'm I'm a little bit too large to do that. I actually think, well, the space shuttle astronaut, I think you had to be a minimum of five foot two. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, just under. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so I was a little too short. It would cost too many millions of dollars to get me in space. So yeah. there, there's that. So let's dive into your research a little bit. Research on supermassive black holes and, and external galaxies. So we, we actually talked about black holes and what would, <laughs> we had a chance to meet you. What, what happens to you as you go through a black hole? Oh, that, that's uh, <laughs> kind of bad, bad things happening. <laughs> yeah. So black holes, you can quietly go into an orbit around it. There's no problem. For example, at the center of our own galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, there is a supermassive black hole. And the sun is quietly in orbit around it. Hmm. It's just a large amount of mass that happens to be crushed together to form that black hole. If the sun, this isn't going to happen, but if the sun suddenly became a black hole, the Earth would stay in orbit around it. Nothing would change. Hmm. It's just the mass gets crushed down. Now, if you visited a black hole and your spaceship went in orbit around it, again, you'd be in orbit. No big problem. Mm -hmm. If you were crazy enough to jump out and and try to (laughs) jump into the black hole, the gravitational field becomes incredibly intense, such that your feet experience so much more gravity than your head, and you get stretched out in an explanation that astronomers like to call spaghettification. (laughs) (laughs) Stretched out, so you really don't want to do this. That's a technical term. (laughs) So unfortunately... With Interstellar and when Matthew McConaughey went into the... Drives right into it. Yeah, unfortunately, he didn't get... Luckily for him, he didn't get stretched out. Yeah, because I mean, you hear about like, well, maybe they're just like a time warp and you can at least maybe put you on another part of the galaxy or the universe just like that. But that's that's not what the theory is saying right now. (laughs) So then we go into protoplanetary disk around stars. Now, what is that? When a star forms, basically we get a nebula, a cloud of gas and dust, and something causes that nebula to become unstable. Maybe a supernova goes off. Maybe a star goes too close to that nebula. It starts to cause it to collapse. Mm -hmm. That nebula can fragment if it's big enough, or it can just collapse down into forming a star. 
as that star begins to form, imagine you go sometimes to the nice pizzerias and you have that dough ball and you see the waiter throwing it up or down and up and down and you see it beginning to stretch out into a disc. That's the disc that the planets start to form in, in this analogy. Mm-hmm. So this protostellar disc or protoplanetary disc is where the planets are starting to form in. And this is what infrared light is particularly well-placed to go out and study. This is what we were doing when I was on the William Herschel telescope mm-hmm. or using one of the Geminis there in Hawaii or Chile. So we could look at, for example, the material just before it falls into the black hole. It produces a lot of infrared radiation. Or we could see those disks of material that probably give rise to the planets that later are the planets that, for example, like the Earth or Jupiter. The infrared is because of the frequencies that it's at? Is that why it lends itself to being more appropriate way to... I'm going to answer that in a long way. So astronomy (laughs) is kind of unusual science in that most of the objects are so far away, we can't touch them. We can't look from another angle. So the only thing that we can do is look at different wavelengths. And so astronomers typically use as many wavelengths as we can to try to understand them. Now, the black holes, the material around black holes and these protoplanetary disks are particularly well suited for infrared because infrared looking for kind of cool objects. Mm -hmm. We think about infrared on the Earth primarily in two ways. We can think about like doing an energy audit and we look for energy leaks out of our windows or through our doors. That's because it's looking for that kind of low energy uh, infrared radiation. Or we can see people, for instance, in a rescue scenario after an earthquake or in a smoke-filled room, we can see their bodies glowing in infrared radiation. Mm -hmm. Planets and the material around a black hole actually produce that infrared radiation. They're at a lower level of energy, so using infrared is the ideal wavelength to go after this. Oh, okay. Wow. And that really kind of leads us into your experience on taking lead and collaborating with teams and designing and building and commissioning these instruments. I know that we touched on some of them, but what are some of the other telescopes you're involved with? So I'm going to highlight one that we are very excited about called the 30-meter telescope. That's the next generation of telescopes that we're still planning. This is going to go to Hawaii or La Palma. And the idea is that it will have a primary mirror 30 meters across, 100 feet across, collect a huge amount of light, of course, but it will have a very, very high fidelity image, like going from a standard television to an HD television and then to a 4K television. We get finer and finer Mm -hmm. details. And we think with such a large telescope, we'll be able to peer into the atmospheres of exoplanets and see them with unprecedented resolution, unprecedented understanding. So that's the next stage. Hopefully that will entertain about the next 10 or 15 years of my life on the instrumentation side of things. I guess it's led into some maybe potential additional advancements with the possible construction of the mid-IR camera high dispenser. (laughs) That's right. And IFU spectrograph. (laughs) That's right. Okay. (laughs) To help me here. (laughs) So, So the exciting thing is... When we look at images from the telescopes, it's wonderful to see the beautiful images of the the stars, the planets, the nebula. But actually, more important to understand the science is if we split the light up into its constituent colors. So when it's sunny, we have the beautiful sunlight coming through. We see that kind of yellowy sunlight. If there's a rainbow, we split the light up because of the water dropping through And that rainbow, if we look very carefully, we can see all the colors of the rainbow, all the colors of the spectrum there, the visible spectrum. We like to do that as astronomers, but if we split it up, more and more 
widely, what we can see is which elements, which compounds are in the atmospheres, how fast they're moving, whether they're moving towards us or away from us. And by understanding the elements, understanding how fast they're moving, we can really get into the physics of what's going on. Wow. So that's what this instrument, Michi, wants to go out and do. Right. Look at these exoplanet atmospheres and also look at the material around the supermassive black wow. holes. That's incredible. Another area of specialization that you have is in active galactic nuclei. You spend a majority of your time in your research in that. What sort of research do you do for things like that? It turns out that there's a supermassive black hole at the center of pretty much every galaxy that we look at. When I say supermassive black hole, I mean like a billion times the mass of our own sun in a single black hole. Now, this black hole, as material starts to fall into it, that material spins around like on the disc, like on the pizza dough that I just described. Mm -hmm. It creates a huge amount of friction. That friction begins to glow in infrared heat, even optical, even up to x-rays. So we like to try to understand the material as it's falling into the black hole, as it tells us unique information about the black hole. So that's something called the, an active galactic nuclei. Wow. The center of a galaxy, the nuclei, is active because of all this material falling into it. We've seen the different shapes of galaxies. Is the shape of the galaxy determined by the black hole that's in it? That's the $64,000 question. <laughs> and this is one of the things that James Webb Space Telescope will hopefully help us to address. It turns out we often think of a black hole as just only devouring gas and dust. It turns out if we try to shovel too much material in at one point, it will actually croak. It can't absorb all that material. It will actually expel the material in what astronomers call an outflow or a wind. Hmm. So again, if you throw too much material in, some gets thrown out. And this expulsion of material, these outflows, may help us understand why galaxies actually go through an intense period of star formation and then calm down. It might be associated with the wind that's created through these outflows. Mm. So incredibly, to understand how we came to be on the Earth, how the sun, how our orbit around the supermassive black hole of our own Milky Way galaxy, we have to understand black holes in other galaxies to understand our true position in the galaxy, in the universe. Wow. So you see those shots from the Hubble, it's a bunch of stars you can focus in on the clouds that are out there and whatnot. But then you see also other shots of the millions of galaxies, individual galaxies. How do you focus your telescope to do that, right? There's an amazing trick with astronomy. Because of light taking a time to get to us, when I look at the moon, I look at the moon not as it is, I look at it as it was about one second ago. If I look at the sun, I look at the sun as it was eight minutes ago. If I look at the nearest star, I see it four years ago because it's four light years away. Mm -hmm. If I look at the nearest galaxy, it's two million light years away. I see it as it was two million years ago. I can continue on. The further away I look, the further back I look in time. Mm. So if I want to see the evolution of our own universe, I just have to look further and further distances. That's why we need such sensitive telescopes. That's why James Webb is going to be such a groundbreaking telescope. Wow. So I mean, that kind of leads us into the opportunity that UTSA has. Very, very special. And you know, I don't want to do any disjustice here by trying to explain it myself. <laughs> Explain exactly what that is just shot up into orbit, heading towards its location on Christmas Day. If you are interested, the San Antonio Express News had a really great article on it for Christmas Day that goes into depth about it. But 
explain, number one, what was the purpose of it being designed? What was the process of getting it launched? And then ultimately, where are we at right now with it? So this was a telescope that was first envisioned even before the Hubble Space Telescope left the Earth. Mm. It's taken about 20, 25 years to go out and build. We have this wonderful optical telescope, the Hubble Space Telescope. It can see the same light that our eyes can see, slightly into the ultraviolet, slightly into the infrared. But if we want to see those cooler bodies, if we want to see objects that are so far away that their light has been stretched because they're so distant, mm. we have to use infrared wavelengths. So James Webb was very quickly envisioned, not a successor as a way to augment the data that we're getting from Hubble. So people started to go out and build this telescope. It's taken a long time. Everything was very complex. It's been a tough telescope to build, but this is the name of research. This is pushing the boundary in an incredible way. It launched Christmas Day, as you said. Flawless launch. NASA had a baseline that they would have enough fuel to keep the telescope when it gets to its uh, final destination. It would be station keeping around that final destination for 10 years. Mm. It turns out the launch was so well done, so perfect, that there might be enough fuel there for 20 years. So it's just been tremendous. Wow. And the size of it, too, it took the largest rocket available. Absolutely. At the time of design, the largest rocket available was called the Ariane 5, the European Space Agency's rocket. So a wonderful collaboration between NASA, the European Space Agency, and the Canadian Space Agency put this telescope together and got this off the ground. And it's right now, as we speak, it's cruising to its position called Lagrangian Point 2. Wow. And it's um, about a million miles? About a million miles away from the Earth. Wow. How long does it take to get there from where it is right now? It takes about 30 days for it to get there, but... We could have got there faster, but we want to maximize the amount of fuel it's got there to keep its lifetime as long as we can. Right now, the telescope has performed flawlessly, unfolding itself. It has this kind of strange shield along the bottom. It's like a solar parasol in that the telescope wants to be kept cool. It doesn't want to see any sunlight. So it had to take a very large sun shield up there, and this is keeping it very, very cool. That's unfurled in space. The telescope has unfurled its mirror, and the secondary mirror is now in front of that primary mirror. So NASA, Canadian Space Agency, and the European Space Agency have literally built a robotic telescope in space much further than the orbit of the moon. This is just incredible times we live in. Just the partnerships too, right? So you mentioned NASA, the European Space Agency, and the Canadian Space Agency all being involved is a $10 billion telescope, which is the most advanced space instrument in existence. You are co-leading with 55 astronomers around the world. Luckily for us, you work with UTSA on getting us some opportunities And we have an amazing opportunity in front of us. It's really exciting. We've been working on preparing for this moment, you could say for like 25 years since I started my PhD. And we put together a group. It's slowly grown over the decades. It's now about 55 people, as you said. There's five of us who lead this. And we were lucky enough to get allocated some time to use the telescope. Excitingly, my graduate students and some others at UTSA who work with me We'll get a chance to go out and use this. We'll get the data. We'll be radioed out from the telescope. 
to NASA's Deep Space Network, then sent to Baltimore, where the headquarters, the Space Telescope Science Institute is. Mm -hmm. Then I'll presumably get an email saying, your data's ready to collect. (laughs) I'll download it to here. At UTSA, we just upgraded our high-performance computing cluster, so we'll be able to do all the number crunching there. And my colleagues, these 55 colleagues, will be able to help me in number crunching. We'll try to understand what's going on with the data, and then we'll put it on a shared disk, like a cloud drive, and then we'll continue to work together. But it's so exciting that we can have UTSA folks fully involved and fully embedded in this project. I've always imagined, based on, of course, what I just see in movies and TV and read, you know, a scientist is going to just jump on this telescope and peer out into the space and find whatever he needs to find and download the data and on he goes. But in reality, it's actually quite competitive to get time on these telescopes. Is that correct? Can you talk about that? Yeah, for approximately every hour on some of the big telescopes, there's about eight people want to use that hour. So you've got to come up with the best proposal that you can and the most compelling science. And that really means you have to have had a long lead up into this to be able to know precisely what question to address. Wow. Mm. So it's not just going out to the telescope and hooking up and put your computer up to it and going at it. Absolutely. (laughs) I'm going to talk about one of my colleagues, Dr. Fuller. She had the chance to use one of NASA's telescopes called SOFIA, which is flying in a 747. And she took that data. And this has been really helpful for us to prepare into how to use the James Webb. So she's done some great work. Yes, she flew in the aircraft and reduced the data as soon as she got back. Wow. Wow. So UTSA has been awarded 53 hours for research on this thing. And like Yvonne and Dr. Packerman mentioned, that for us to be able to get 53 hours is a huge deal, especially being a Hispanic-serving institution. I mean, you're always trying to work to increase representation of minorities in the sciences, right? That's obviously very important for the university. What else does it mean for UTSA to have access to this sort of research? I think it's a really exciting prospect that we can have the students and the existing folks here, but I really hope it will attract other people to come and visit, perhaps take sabbaticals with us, and perhaps if we can get some more faculty lines, we can get some more people to come and work with us here. (laughs) So I think it just helps to show the growing strength here at UTSA. We have so many other high schools too, the technology schools, STEM's a big push, pretty heavily in San Antonio huge opportunity for the community as well. When you're collecting this data and you're bringing it in, we're not just looking at like Polaroids. How does the data get received and what do you guys have to do with it? So the data will hit the disk here at some point and then on a standard desktop it will take about a day to process that data into something that's more understandable. I'm sure we'll have to do this multiple times, especially as this is a brand new telescope with brand new instruments. But then we will try to say, okay, this image or the color of the light, the spectra indicate this. Let's make a model of what we think's going on and let's simulate our idea. And then we contrast the model outputs with the data that we're getting. And if the model outputs don't match the data, the model's wrong and we have to start again and we change it until we can match that model data. Then, hopefully, as long as we're smart enough, we'll get the right answer. And then we'll be able to go to conferences and make those presentations. And and again, hopefully it will feature or be led by those folks here at UTSA. Wow. Wonderful. And you had mentioned maybe the potential increase of really more faculty 
I kind of feel like you're prepping mm-hmm. for it because, uh, you know, coming in uh, 2022, you kind of touched on a little bit. Two new courses, Leadership and Science Integration Program. Then this will help students learn to lead high-tech instrument groups for astronomy and other forms of imagery, military, automotive, medical, AI, I would imagine, is tied in there as well. And then also the philosophy of space exploration. This, to me, I find pretty fascinating because I feel like a lot of our questions kind of fall more in this realm. Yeah. It is really exciting that that sort of foundation that is growing and this opportunity is huge. One other thing that I found really, really awesome that you participate in is the connection with the high school education and leading the annual San Antonio Teacher Training Astronomy Academy. What sort of work are you doing there? How long have you been doing that for? What I'm going to answer that in a general way and then focus into the teacher training. So those three courses that you mentioned is, to me, an example of how to work across disciplines. So in the leadership course, I'm working with folks over at NASA Marshall, as well as people who train in leadership. And we're going to hopefully give students in both science and engineering, engineering training, but also learning how to take the science case and say, in order to build that science case or address that science case, I need to build Widget X. That might be as grand as the James Webb Space Telescope, or it might be a small camera. It's working across the disciplines. With the philosophy of space exploration, that's working with a close colleague in philosophy, Dr. Sharif Tekken. Me and her are going to put together this course and try to address some of the big questions like, what is life? What are the ethics of life? Et cetera, et cetera. Then the teacher training, I work with Professor Carmen Fees, who's in the College of Education, and about, as a rough guess, 20, 25 astronomers from around the world, in Mexico, in Chile, in Korea, in Hawaii, to try to encourage astronomy learning in initially San Antonio schools, but now we're across the state, as a way to make the high school teachers more comfortable in teaching this and teaching astronomy, which we hope will inspire kids to stay into STEM education. Mm -hmm. So the goal is to keep kids in STEM and spark the fascination with the joy of astronomy and the joy of physics, even physics and STEM in general. I guess, you know, I've always kind of looked coming from the business side or really other any disciplines. You see astronomy as a class availability, mostly for maybe an elective or something else like that. Not really knowing what can you do with a degree in something like that. If you had a message you can give to potential students that are looking at UTSA or somebody like, I've seen astronomy on the class list, but other than that, I'm not sure what it means. What would you say to them? I'm going to focus on this, uh, the leadership course. So this is done with two close colleagues that I've known for a few years. One is Major General Tony Kukolo. He teaches leadership. He was in the military and was teaching leadership for many years to the US Army. That's not something you typically think about in astronomy. Jessica Gaskin, who's over at NASA Marshall, she's been teaching leadership, but from a science point of view, putting these things together to address these questions is something we need to do. We need to have leadership in science, and we can apply that into all sorts of fields, as you said, military, medical imaging, etc., etc., to kids thinking about doing astronomy. I do like it because it is still physics. There's still a lot of mathematics and calculations that we have to think about there. But to me, it's really exciting to think about the opportunities that we have in the coming decade or beyond. I think it's going to be a thrilling time to understand if we're alone in the universe. There was a wonderful report uh, produced by National Academies, and I love one of the things that they said on the preface of that, which I'll slightly distort, but it's something like, 
we may not be the generation that understand if we are alone in the universe or if there's other life in the universe, but we are definitely the first generation to have the technological power to address that question. Mm-hmm. How exciting is that? Wow. That's very cool. Wow. Such a huge opportunity, too. And just the fact that it does span so many different industries. University like UTSA, where everything is very much interdisciplinary. I mean, we've had the opportunity to speak with deans of colleges and really that being the focus. Just having this sort of access to research and the connections that you bring, all that really kind of coming together is really exciting for me to see. So thank you for all this. Got a couple more minutes with you, but answer some questions for us. Fact or fiction? We only have an astrophysicist on here. Every these now are and Andrew's then, questions, so. by the way. I, I did not put any of these. So, so what, so what's I'm curious? What are you going to ask? No, I mean, what's popular right I'm, now? I'm getting worried now. No, 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 it's not that bad. <laughs> We're all watching Netflix. The Don't Look Up movie that's out with Leonardo DiCaprio. While yeah, we do know there's asteroids out there, things like that. How real is that? <laughs> Perhaps the best way I can answer that is we do think that a comet or asteroid hit the Earth and that helped to wipe out the dinosaurs. So it has happened. Mm -hmm. Is it going to happen again in my lifetime? Unlikely. But one of the things that it featured in the movie is, I think it was something called the planetary defense. Mm -hmm. That is a real thing that NASA has. It is a real monitoring that we've got. It doesn't keep me up at night thinking (laughs) if we're going to get hit by a comet or asteroid, but it could happen. Well, I feel like if we're able to look out that far out into the universe, hopefully we'll be able to catch a comet or an asteroid coming to give us enough warning, if anything. Well, the trouble is, is if it's like a black piece of rock on the black sky, they're very hard right. to see. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Infrared, we need infrared. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think, too, the touch point of that movie is also the reaction of our fellow human beings yes. to this news. Yes, oh my news. gosh. It, it was scary real. It yeah, we were like, uh... It was a fun movie. Yeah, it was, it was. You had mentioned that we do believe that an asteroid did hit the Earth and potentially created the extinction of the dinosaurs. There's also that thought that a chunk of the Earth was spit out into orbit and it ultimately became the moon. Yeah, that would have been much before the dinosaurs being wiped out. Okay. That's a strong theory. Yeah. I've seen like all the diagrams and this is where it could happen and the mass and of course, I mean, you know. The modeling. I'm I'm a YouTube physicist, so. (laughs) (laughs) Final one, one of my favorite movies, just for the idea of really making you think, is Interstellar. We wiped out the black hole theory. That didn't happen. But the potential of multiple dimensions, because that's really kind of what flipped it on. That blew my mind. What can you do to research something like that? So I'm going to take your question in two parts. I thought the first part of Interstellar was outstanding. One of the key components there was this idea of time dilation, which we didn't have a chance to talk about in black holes. But the idea that if you get very close to something very massive, a large amount of gravity, time slows down. Mm. And the movie featured it so effortlessly Mm -hmm. and very, very impressed with how they got that across. Regarding (laughs) multidimensions, certainly could exist. I don't have any evidence to support that. That was a pretty wild part where he's on that planet and for every one minute, it's like a decade or something on Earth. It's wild. They did very well. That movie was very, very good. And is there any movie that you suggest we watch? Well, I think my favorite movie in the sci-fi domain is certainly Alien still. Oh, yes. I love <laughs> yeah, That's Yvonne's jam right there. That's Yvonne's jam. Yeah, I've probably seen it way too many times. <laughs> 
Well, Dr. Packham, thank you so much. Congratulations on the success and all the research that you guys are doing. It's really, really awesome to see you guys putting UTSA out on the forefront. Well, thank you so much for getting the good word about UTSA out. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. We hope to have some follow-on interviews maybe with some of the UTSA students who are studying all this. Yeah, once we get some of this data in, you guys have a chance to review it. Come back and tell us what you're finding. Absolutely. Love to do that. Awesome. Sounds good. Thank you very much. Birds up. Birds up. Beep, beep. So there you have it, Runner Nation, the interview with Dr. Chris Packham, a UTSA astronomy department, our first astrophysicist yeah. on the show. So that is such a cool interview and, you know, his perspective of things and his excitement for it. Of course, you know, the more we start talking about NASA. Yeah, I think this is really cool. <laughs> <laughs> I love all things space, space exploration, the technology. It's pretty incredible. Well, I mean, his expertise in the technology and the development of these different telescopes, again, all over the world, the fact that they're all network to where he can do his research from San Antonio while looking at a telescope out of Japan or out of Hawaii. And to me, that was pretty incredible. I find it fascinating because having a background that is very heavy in physics and mathematics as it applies to the world, I find it really fascinating about how the rules really change when you get outside of our atmosphere. And it's crazy just to kind of think that there's a whole nother way to view and calculate and do a lot of things that go by rules that don't apply necessarily here Mm -hmm. to the planet. Earth and the way it functions here on, on our planet. Well, I'm excited cool. to see what the data looks like. Yeah. You know, especially the, the work that the students are going to be doing when they piece all that stuff together. I'm sure we're going to be able to show everybody. Uh, yeah, we're bringing them. We're bringing the students. So we want to hear <laughs> yeah. what they gained out of the data that they were able to see. Exactly. Well, I mean, and, and it's exciting too, just to see the opportunities for any students that are out there that are looking to get into this field that, you know, Dr. Packham has kind of a path that they can take and introductions mm-hmm. that he can make. I mean, him being a fellow at NASA's Marshall Space. Flight Center is pretty incredible, but then his connections all over the world. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it can really kind of set these students up for a path to success on this yeah. because, I mean, the development of the astronomy department, too, the new classes that are coming on, all that is really exciting. But thank you again, Dr. Packham, for your help of getting UTSA front and center, really being a definition of what it means to be a tier one research institution. Thank you so much for your time, and we'll have to have you back on so we can talk about what's going on as far as the research is concerned. Absolutely. So, Giving Day is coming up. Yes. So, this is another big announcement that just came out. Giving Day is going to be April 19th and 20th. So keep an eye out for additional promotion and what's going on. There's going to be a lot of different ways to be involved. So mark your calendars April 19th at 10 11 a.m. on the dot for 1,969 minutes in honor of the year UTSA was established. I see what you did there. (laughs) The campaign will run and you can be involved. You can sign up to be an ambassador, help us promote it, get the word out. If you're going to be sharing it on social media, please use hashtag build the nest. And for further details and information and ways to get involved, you can go to givingday.utsa.edu. So keep an eye out. It's going to be an exciting couple of days of fundraising. We had a record year last year, so I think we are looking to uh, hit that mark and go beyond this year. That is awesome. And, you know, sitting with different groups around UTSA, the Alumni Council for the Alvarez College of Business, the Construction Science Management Advisory Council, 
all of this is, is really kind of already circulating and getting out there. So um, if you are an alumni of particular colleges, there are advisory councils, there are alumni councils that you can contact directly and work work in conjunction with the plans that they have going on. So uh, there's a lot that is happening. So uh, we ask you to please reach out and get involved. And there'll be a lot of ways to donate specifically to areas that are important to you, but they all go towards this wonderful goal of fundraising for UTSA during our giving day time. Exactly. Well, yeah. we do have sports that are going on, like we mentioned in the last episode. There are many other sports with UTSA, and we got to show them all the same support as we provided for the football team. And they're all kind of kicking off right now, right? Yeah, so yeah. Uh, men's basketball, next home game is January 29th at 1 p.m. That's against Florida Atlantic. The women's basketball game, next home game is February 3rd at 7 versus Rice. Men's baseball opens on February 18th on the road versus Tolton State. And women's softball opens on February 11th at the Houston Invitational. You can find more information by going to UTSA.com. Again, we want to support the student-athletes across all sports. And there's plenty of opportunity to do that even during the springtime. So weather's going to be nice. And uh, it's good to get out there and support your UTSA Roadrunners. But other than that, we have more exciting episodes that are coming down the line. Again, we want to highlight the Tier 1 Research Institution side and really kind of bring in the research while also chatting with some alumni that are out there and kind of get an idea of what they have going on. So stay tuned to the episodes are coming in. Thank you again so much for listening, for downloading, for sharing. If, if you're listening to Apple Podcasts, please make sure you hit that five-star review. That helps us more than you know to help us get the word out and get more UTSA Roadrunners engaged. But thank you again so much, and we'll see you on the next episode. Birds up. Birds up. <laughs>